Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's hard being a journalist on social media right now. It's hard being a female journalist in the world. So a lot of it's kind of, it feels kind of like every single painful force is converging right now in my head, over my, over my head. And I know that I don't have it as bad as a lot of people. And I do feel like it's a necessary thing to have happened right now. And I want to be helpful. I want to be part of it. I want to be part of helping fix the world, the community. I want to help right the wrongs. I want to help people who have felt unheard be heard. And it's kind of hard. It's really hard to know how best to do that. That was Jen Yamato. I'm Sam Fracoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Jen Yamato is an old-school reporter who's adapted her work for the internet. In fact, she's very much a product of the internet. She first started writing about movies and entertainment for Rotten Tomatoes before Rotten Tomatoes became Rotten Tomatoes. I realize now that's a lot of times to say Rotten Tomatoes in a sentence. Anyway, from there she's landed all over the place. Uh, Deadline Hollywood, Movie Line, The Daily Beast, and now, most recently, at the LA Times. There are plenty of adjectives to describe the virtues of Jen's writing, but what I find most impressive as someone who also writes about movies 
is that Jen has remained incredibly passionate. Whether she's writing about the whitewashing of Ghost in the Shell or having Werner Herzog analyze a Kanye West music video, her heart is in it. That may sound incredibly vague to the listener, but I can tell you as someone who's been writing about movies for seven years, it's really hard to keep being interested in it. What happens is that the work becomes obligatory. You feel like it's very much part of your existence and that without it, without doing the thing you do every morning, maybe you're not the same person. Anyway, we dive into her upbringing in El Cerrito, writing film criticism for the internet versus now print. We have a conversation about diversity and conversations about conversations about diversity. And lastly, given the recent developments of the past few months, we run through the recent bad behavior of white men. That last topic seems particularly unavoidable right now. So, finally, here is Jen Yamato. Can we start at the beginning? Sure, what's the beginning for you? 1981? 1981. Yeah. A fine year. Yeah. Yeah. June 3rd. June 3rd, 1981. You're born. A Gemini baby was born. And you're big on astrology. We should put that at the top. I would say I'm not big enough on astrology that I fully understand it, but I do believe that I'm a true Gemini. Um, So I read the horoscope in the newspaper and I might have an app or two on my phone. You definitely have those apps on your phone. For guidance. I like what it gives you in terms of like additional guidance should you choose. Setting the stage and also for people who don't know astrology, can you just... What's a Gemini mean? Gemini is born sort of in the overlap between latter May and early June. We're very chatty. Chatty? We like, yeah. Like communication, verbal communication, um, information. We are sometimes uncharitably described as being two-faced, but I really feel like it's more like, uh, two-faced in the, in the sense of being multifaceted. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really like see. I don't. I shouldn't have told you that. Because now I'm no expert, but I enjoy reading my horoscope. It's okay. That I think that's good. Um, that was a good joke. I like that. Two-faced. Okay. I don't think that's accurate, but we'll we'll get to the bottom of that and see what happens. Thank you. Wait, was that like a nice thing? You're saying you don't think I'm two-faced? Yeah, I don't think you're two-faced. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That was a compliment. Thank you. Yeah. You'll get a few of those during this episode. Good. I expect them. So you were born in Berkeley and you were raised in El Cerrito. What were your parents doing? Uh, let's see. My dad worked for the Alameda Naval Air Station in Alameda, which is now closed down. He um, first was like fixing airplanes because he's a longtime Bay Area guy. So he was there before computers came along and then he started like working on their computer system my mom worked as an executive assistant to a bank president and then worked for a a local like um german-owned medical company i have no idea yeah yeah anyway so so they were busy though 
They're busy, yeah. They met. Here's here's a more interesting detail than what they did. Okay. How did they meet? Oh, well, they both grew up in the Bay Area. My mom's from Berkeley and my dad's from Oakland. I like when you ask yourself questions. Well, I'm just helping you out here. <laughs> oh, really? A good friend. You're welcome. Uh, they met in the 1970s in a Japanese-American bowling league in the dying days of disco when a bunch of like Japanese-American people, young people socialized by bowling. And so they met. My mom bowled for a team that was sponsored by a bar in Oakland called Bench and Bar, which used to be like a, like a local courthouse scene bar. I don't know why she bowled for them. Anyways, the way they told me their story is that they said that they met bowling and my mom had to ask one of her friends to drive her Mustang home because she was going to go home with my dad. Uh-huh. And that is also like the... The most TMI that I've ever gotten from my mom. So thankfully, it's not terrible. So when did they tell you that origin story? Probably when I was in high school. When I asked, yeah. So you had to pry it out of them? I didn't have to pry, no. You just asked once? Yeah. I think you reach an age where you're like, huh, my parents used to be like young people. What (laughs) was that all about? Yeah, hearing about my parents being young is uh, a nightmare. Why? I mean, they just seem like they had a better time than I have ever had. Probably. <laughs> what What kind of fun do they have? I mean, you know, drugs and uh, drugs. And my dad's going to be like, why are you saying this on the podcast? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, like they had a good time. And I don't they weren't like drug addicts. I feel like people had more pure fun generations yeah. ago yeah there was a lot of like time with friends without phones oh my gosh and yes people played baseball on the street and it's like the, the whole thing that you uh, see it explains everything actually yeah, yeah. yeah. my yeah. dad used to like drag race his car with his buddy <laughs> around he was in a car club yeah um people used to do like drag racing for fun they used to, he told me that he they used to drive down to mexico and sleep in like the flatbed of a truck and just go fishing like in Baja. Yeah. People wouldn't do that now. I, I mean, I would do that with if who? other people were down to go with me. Okay. I'd go in a second. After this podcast, we'll go. Don't challenge. I will go. Yeah. No, I think you will. I mean, you're, you're a fairly adventurous person by, by what I know. Mm-hmm. Was that true when you were a teenager? Um, I would say it was not true until I was a teenager. Oh, okay. So before then, you were a little reluctant. I definitely had a, hmm, what I call my awkward phase in... And you're not still in that? No. Oh, okay. Do I see? <laughs> yeah, okay. I see how this is going to go. I get it. Uh, anyways, my awkward phase is when I, second grade, I got glasses and everything changed. You got glasses? What was the big I'm deal with that? Uh, it just, you it, know. It wasn't a good look? It was fucking, oh my God. You can I swear. swear. You can swear. <gasps> I can swear? Yeah, there's profanity allowed. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. They don't have that daily times, do they? No, they don't. They have, I was <laughs> able, I was allowed to swear in writing as necessary at several other outlets before the LA Times, but mm-hmm. my goodness, they do not, they do not like swearing. Mm-hmm. In high school, you became more rebellious. What did that look like? I don't think I said rebellious, but do you ever think what do you think about what was your best year or your favorite year of life? No. Mine for sure was 17. 
Oh. What? Jen. What? I mean, that's nonsense. What do you mean? I mean, that implies that there's not better years to come. No, no, they're amazing years after that. Uh But 17 was like a turning point. Oh, what happened? Not not a peak. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. Like, um, it was a turning point in me sort of grasping my sense of self. Me realizing that the world is much bigger than just the town that I grew up in. And wanting more and wondering more and, and, and sort of like realizing that I could go seek out things that make me happy and, and interest me. Mm. Beyond El Cerrito. El Cerrito is a very lovely town. It's a little sleepy for my taste. Yeah. It can be a little sleepy. What were you doing at 17 that you remember being especially fun? Well, I think it was an empowering year. Um I just felt more like young adulthood was was like that's when it hit me. Uh-huh. I had some degree of like freedom, and I I don't know. I also that was before I I don't know if that has something, but I had two working knees, so that was nice. You had two working knees. Yeah, I tore my ACL like when I was eighteen. Oh, so I couldn't play like soccer anymore. Mm. But before that, it was great. Before your knee broke, yeah, 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 I didn't know about the knee breaking. It didn't break. I tore my ACL. I had to get surgery, and it hasn't recovered since. Well, not that one did, but then I tore the other one. So, oh my god, I was like very into like I was a captain of the soccer team, captain of the softball team. I think you told me once that you called yourself like a tomboy. Is that accurate? Oh, that's definitely true. I still feel that way. You still feel that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did that alienate you from? No, actually, no, no, not at all. I actually feel like embracing like a tom, my tomboy spirit in middle school is what first gave me like a sense of empowerment. Oh, and you didn't feel that elsewhere before? No, it was hard. Not that I didn't, but it definitely like changed something in me. Hmm. I guess I'm interested because everyone has this different story of their engagement with their parents at that age because it's a tender age you're changing there's like a lot of hormones your body's like literally changing and growing you interact with parents like i was a fucking disaster to my parents why i was just mean and rude and crabby and moody and because i didn't mean no reason alchemy i mean there was no real reason they didn't deserve it no parent deserves a mean kid most you're parents a mean don't. child i was i was i i'm you know a sore loser what did you lose at <laughs> i mean Just not, when you, you i, I, I tried like, not losing that was the goal mm, yeah. yeah i get that but how are you with your parents were you guys was it like harmonious uh yeah sure until around 17 yeah when i started being a little bit more rebellious and you were had sort of like your own agency yeah and they didn't like that no, they did. They they're fine with it. It's just like they're growing pains and the push and pull. Uh, but my parents are great. They were always very supportive, and still are. Have been my entire life. Mm. Did you start writing in high school? Not really. I didn't really start writing in the way that I write now until after college. Well, no, that's not true. In college, I my favorite classes were film classes. So I took a lot of them, and I went to a school that had uh, some ridiculously loose 
one credit courses. <laughs> so I took a class on Tupac, Bay Area legend and hero. Um, so I wrote a bunch of like essays on like juice, for example. <laughs> and then I took a lot of film classes. So, so that was the first that I ever started writing about film. Mm. Did you seem good at it at first? I don't know. I've never thought of my writing in that way. I just enjoy it. You don't think about it in terms of quality? No, I don't. That, do you? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, it, does it worry? Do you, do you worry? Does it matter to you? Does it matter? It matters you're... less now, for sure. Yeah. But that's because interests change. That's you, true. Yeah. Did you have contemporaries at, at college that you were writing with? Did you guys start, no. like, a magazine? You were no. just doing it by yourself? I hung out with a bunch of computer dorks. Really? And actually, but this is also, I didn't have a very active college career um for various reasons but you know like what you can only reasons? take one i don't know i was just like not very interested i didn't know what i exactly what path was available to me that i wanted to do so i kind of accidentally definitely accidentally landed you know, on this path <laughs> but because i was hanging out with those those computer dorks in college one of them the year after college got a job as a web engineer for a newish website. And that website was Rotten Tomatoes, which was started by a bunch of like uh, UC Berkeley kids in the Bay Area. And mm. So that ended up being my first job. That's a great first job. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you didn't know that was going to happen probably. No, not at all. Did it just seem like a bunch of dorks starting something? Um, it was cool. I basically interviewed for an editor position it was not a writing position mm. at the time, but they were looking for people who knew a lot of stuff about film, were interested in staying up to date on all things movies and pop culture. And it was a lot of, actually it was mostly like keeping the database full and current and reading reviews, which I did love to do. You liked reading reviews. Oh yeah. And everybody who started... Uh, in those early days at Rotten Tomatoes were just like giant film criticism nerds. Mm. Like I would, when I first started going to festivals, I would freak out, like fangirl out on, on critics in the lobby of like the Yarrow. <laughs> and they'd be like, who is, I'm pretty sure I like weirded several people out. Who are the people? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure the first time I met Sean Levy, I did something like that. Definitely Ebert. He was a big one. Yeah. And as as you know, Ebert was like the sweetest, most supportive, right. most inclusive, most welcoming presence in criticism. So it was very encouraging and it was really lovely to to know him for that brief time. Mm. And so you were in your early twenties going to Sundance? The mid twenties going to Sundance. Um under Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's someone else. What? I want to know who else is like in that fold of critics oh, that you loved reading. I don't know. I, I still love to read Manola. Yeah. I think she's the most badass critic. One of them we have now. I like this image of you fangirling <laughs> over oh, film yeah. critics. Which is because anytime someone is like, oh, you're that, and it's a film critic that's being recognized, there's two things that happen. One, huge delight on the inside because it's like that doesn't happen and the second thing is like oh this is strange this never happens you're speaking from experience people recognizing you and being oh my god you're san Fragoso. this is how it's gonna go isn't it 
Uh, no. no. Well, it is funny because like back then, this is like 2006, 2007. That was much long before social media was like a thing. Right. Definitely long before critics realized that social media was a thing they should be on. So a little pre-Twitter. Yeah, so like most people did not know what different film critics look like except for if they like looked at their little the icon. Icon they're there. Or like they cuz a lot of people photo had, or something like Did that. you visit like people's websites and stuff that mm-hmm. they had because everyone had like their own blog. There was like a blog spot or uh, mm-hmm. a WordPress or like you know, back then I don't even had WordPress. Which is crazy cuz now when I think back to those days even just 10 years ago in film criticism, it seems so different. It was so different. It was, well, for one, people were getting paid. The baby years of web criticism. So weird. Blows my mind. Did you think that it was going to change the way it did at that time? The way that it did. I don't think anybody could have predicted the way that anything internet related has changed. But I certainly did put a lot more stock into like the traditional publications, print media, you know. <laughs> Before we all decided that Prince dead. I Shout out LA Times. I don't know. <laughs> I want to work through this because mm. you you've been writing about movies for a long time and been in this scene of it time that predates me. Like your birth predates your birth. How old are you? Anyway. <laughs> so uh in the mid two thousands. I guess I want to know, as a young, you're like 25, 26 going to festivals, and you see a lot of film critics. At the time, did it seem to you that film criticism was a viable profession? Yeah, I mean, because I saw that people did it. It didn't seem like an easy thing to break into, and it certainly wasn't, and it still is not. But until now, until literally this year, when I moved to over to the LA Times, I exclusively only worked on the internet. Right. So that was basically my world. Mm-hmm. So I've seen how how like online criticism has sort of grown and the opportunities that people have, like the ways that people have found into it. I don't know. Back then you still like, it, it was so different going to festivals. Critics would not party, for example. Uh, they wouldn't party. Yeah, critics are very, and they still are kind of like this, you know, like they're very serious going to PI yeah. screenings all the time because, like, they're just giant nerds, which is one thing I love about other film critics. But now the internet has brought everybody together and, mm. like, blurs a lot of worlds together and there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. The thing you forget about film critics and, and people who love movies in general is that what they love is sitting in a room and not talking to people. Yeah, and it. I guess what I, what I was trying to, to get at is that back then it was much more of a delineated tribe, right? Mm-hmm. Like a specific tribe of people with their own uniforms, all vitamin D deficiencies, like <laughs> go to the same screenings and just talk to each other in the lobby. And they all, I'll be honest, they all then seemed like they look the same too. They're all like older white dudes. Yeah. It's still dominated by them, but there's so much more diversity now, mm-hmm. and, which I obviously that's because of the internet. Glad though. for, yeah, absolutely. I mean, back then, there was also a huge divide, from what I know and have heard about, between print and online. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, run me through like 
how often were you not looked at as a serious writer because you were writing for the internet? Me? I'm not sure. I can't answer that question because I don't know. I didn't. I was never told that. Right. But you're aware of the atmosphere. Yeah. And I think that applied a lot more to other people and other outlets than the ones that I worked for. But there, like a lot of stu- studios were very slow to adopt online strategies for mm. even dealing with journalists who work only online. So you saw a bunch of studios slowly develop their own like online departments, online publicity departments. And most of those departments were staffed by like younger people. Right. So it, it kind of like the whole system slowly grew together. I mean, there are still, there's still bloggers who don't have the weight and the history of like a bigger outlet behind them who don't get the same access. Did and you hate the term blogger? I didn't. No, because it was all I knew. You were fine with it? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who are very much like, no, I'm a writer. See, that's funny because like, how, I don't know how you answer that question when people ask you what you do. But especially mm-hmm. in L.A., when people ask me what I do, it's hard to figure out how to answer that question. Um, I just walk away. <laughs> You're like, oh, bye. Eh, no, I, I go. the thing is, uh, you know, I started writing about movies. In the womb? Uh, No. God, that'd be terrible. That'd be exhausting. So I write about movies out of the womb. Ugh, so many movies and terrible writing. And babies to work. <laughs> they, is that what you're endorsing in this podcast? You want child labor? Oh my god, that's the headline of the of the pod. Uh, when I started writing about movies, how did you? Um, <laughs> in high school. Yeah, freshman year of high school, it, there was already that transition from print receding and and online taking shape at a certain point michael phillips is blogging wesley Mm -hmm. morris is blogging dana steve like all these people had to blog out of obligation so like when you had people in the new york times writing a blog there's no difference anymore that it became indistinguishable but the thing i wanted to say is like in 2012 2013 i asked a bunch of critics I was obsessed, like you, you know, when you're at Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I loved, like, Wesley Morris, and, yeah. I, and I loved, and I found all their emails, and I'd reach out to them, and I, like, interviewed a bunch of them. So I wanted to know, like, how do you become that? Yeah. And I thought the way to do that was to ask them. I had a very short-lived film critic interview column at Rotten Tomatoes. How did that go? Called Meet a Critic. Oh, that's so nice. Because I like the idea, and I still like the idea of, like, getting to know the, the, the person behind a body of work. Right. And the person... Much like you, I kind of feel like what kind of like how do they come to have this this outlook? What is their outlook on life? How does that then affect? Yeah, um, them as a person and 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 sort of like yeah. total look at them. I you know I think the cinephiliacs does that. Um, Peter Labuse's show, mm-hmm. but you know, even at the time when I was getting advice, the advice from everyone in unison was like ah. Uh, Maybe don't do it. Yeah. I <laughs> don't mean, put I, all your eggs in one basket. There's a time when a lot of people are very actively discouraging because they didn't want to lead some young optimistic soul into a, a life of frustration. Part of it's also the no market's pay. small. Yeah. And it's like they want their job as well. I guess so. Uh, the good people don't look at it that way, but there's always that, you know, we're all in competition. That's, Which I've that, that's never how it felt. Is. That's not a thing that I've ever worried about. But I don't know if you've ever felt that. It's because you've done especially well for 
a sustained period of time. You've been properly employed for... Yeah, that's what, true. I've been very lucky to be... Since the beginning. I did freelance for a year, which was interesting. And I do think that you need a very different set of emotional and psychological skills to be able to like keep it together as a freelancer what does that in mean? this world. Uh, without a safety net, it's really hard to like not know or like have a steady paycheck uh, when rates are so drastically different than they were 20 years ago yeah. for film writing. Yeah. I mean, there's no money in that. Yeah. So there's that. What was the job that you had where you felt, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be? I think by the time I got to Movie Line, that's where I also God. was a... Movie <laughs> sorry, the, the online version of Movie, Movie Line, Line, formerly... Formerly print publication. Didn't they get Elvis Mitchell to do that? Yeah. A lot of a lot of great writers came through there, great writers and editors. Right. Uh, sadly, then was turned into a video-only site and slowly killed by default. But for a while, it was really fun. By the way, when, when anytime a website or publication they is like... They pivoted to video. Anytime they're like, we're going to do video now, what you're really saying is, we're going to go bankrupt now. Because <laughs> video almost never... They just It yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Well, it's because it looks good. It They've seen other people succeed, so why not them? It seems good, I think, on paper to executives who want to push a company forward. But nobody has, a few people have figured out how to really do it well. Yeah. Movie line went under. I don't know. Define went under. Are they still around? No. That's under. All right. Fair. Yeah. That's under. Yeah. My links are still up. Well, that's good for your writing. <laughs> so you felt good then. You started growing an audience at that point, right? I felt good there um, because I also was writing things that were very, that were fun. I got to still go to festivals, do interviews. I really enjoyed doing interviews. And I was an editor there. So I had some sort of like say in the direction of the content. Mm. Was Daily Beast after that? Mm-hmm. So run run me through how you got <clears throat> the job. There's a big one in between Movie Line and Rest in Peace Movie Line and The Daily Beast. And that big one was Deadline Hollywood, ah. which was a huge change in everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. Those people scare me. What do you mean those people? At Deadline Hollywood? Why? This is not just don't. I don't know what's going on. Do they scare you more than people at Variety or at Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter? No, they scare me too. Trade Trade people scare you. I mean, Deadline has a has a quality to it that seems sometimes a little unseemly to me. Oh my! Yeah, I mean, we're not breaking news here. Well, that is the, the that's the sustained reputation or the perception for a long time. Yeah, because of the way in which it, it exploded. Mm-hmm. And but I get that. The Nikki Fink start there is that she started it. She started it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm not totally up to date on that. She seems like a really good time. You know, I learned more from Nikki Fink than I've learned from any other editor. And she personally called me to offer me the job at Deadline when I had no trade experience before. Mm. And so I owe her a lot. And I'm really grateful to her for a lot of things. She was very talented. She's very good. Yeah. And and seems like she works uh, unbelievably She's Very good hard. at what she did. Sadly, she doesn't really do that anymore. Oh, she's not doing it now? No. I thought she, she had a blog. Runs, she runs her own um, Hollywood fiction site. 
which is very interesting in a different way. But no, she called me. Uh, To this day, I and most people who have worked at Deadline have never met her in person. You've still not met her? Mm -mm, No. I hope to one day. But. That's part of her thing. Alas. Right? I mean, she doesn't want to be seen or. I don't know. I can't speak for her as to why, but yeah. It's something I always was ho- hoped would happen, but it just didn't happen while I was there. Did you ever say like, hey, let's go get coffee? I should have. I should have said that. People should say that more in general, I think. Hey, let's go get coffee? Yeah. I feel like that's said more than enough. You think so? That's why there's a thousand coffee shops. I thought the coffee shops are there in LA for all of the unemployed screenwriters. <laughs> that seems harsh, but accurate. I don't take it back. My, I'm not sorry. I, I, yeah, you, you don't like unemployed screenwriters. You only I, like, I don't. You only like employed what? ones. I don't get it. There's nothing to get. Empty comment. <laughs> I was trying to figure out why you had such disdain for the screenwriters. I don't. I love filmmakers. I truly do. Mm-hmm. I like talking to them about their process. I like um, picking their brains um, after I've seen something that they've made. Which it took me a really long time to realize is a really hard thing f- to ask them to do. To ask a filmmaker to engage with a critic or a journalist on something so intimate as like their intentions mm-hmm. or the ex- execution of their intentions, whether that execution is good or not. Right. Takes a lot. And I only now recently, well, you know, relatively recently, appreciate how hard that probably is. Do you think when you're interviewing people that people trust you? I hope so. Because I'm not trying to fool them. I try to approach interviews as conversations. And so I try to make myself a part of myself available to them. Mm. So that it's an an exchange of ideas. And yeah, I would say that's my my philosophy towards interviewing. What's yours, Sam? My philosophy has been pretty apparent. Uh, oh, I think during this episode, talk easy, just talk on easy. Oh wow, I mean that's really wonderful to hear that from you right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, my philosophy, I you know, I I think the same way. Yeah. yeah, conversations. Your thing is a little bit different than mine, in that I think you are very interested in a timely bent to it. You're very sometimes you're very much a a very quality reporter in the old. You know, you're an old school reporter in a lot of ways. I don't know about that, but thank you. That sounds. You nice. don't think so? I I I like the idea of that. Um, I certainly have a lot more learning to do and evolving to do, and I've I've evolved a lot myself in many ways as a writer, as a critic, as a hmm. an interviewer, as a as a person. So it's it's. Also, I think I think you're talking about timeliness, and I'm guessing you're talking about like asking harder questions mm. that I feel like is going to return now, especially now. So I hope that more people sort of embrace that. Right. It feels more real just to be like honest, ask honest questions that you're really thinking. What's the most uh, negative response you received to a question you've asked? <sighs> it's probably when I asked the Cohen brothers about Hail Caesar. Uh huh. About, I mean, everybody was talking about diversity in Hollywood Oof. at the time. And I don't know if you've noticed how diverse their movies are. I thought it was fair to put the question to them. A lot of whites. A fair amount. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think at the time, no, probably nobody had asked them that or challenged them on it. Um, but it was important to me not to catch them. But honestly, I, I honestly like want to know what the thinking is for a filmmaker who has the power in there to cast diversely or to make a different choice that mm. would have a different impact and why they would not do that. And what was their response? Yeah, basically that it was a stupid question. And They uh, said it was a stupid question. I can't remember now. It's like I wrote about it, so it's obviously on the internet. But yeah, it was a little bit prickly. And I guess I understand that. But uh, it's now certainly a question I think any filmmaker should be able to answer, no matter what that answer is. Did you find their answer to be sufficient? No, but my time was also very insufficient with them. How much time? I mean, that was probably at the towards the end of our interview time. Uh, you asked, as filmmakers, is it important or not important to consciously factor in concerns like diversity? And uh, Ethan Cohen responded, not in the least. It's important to tell the story you're telling in the right way which might involve black people or people of whatever heritage or ethnicity, or it might not. And there's more. I'm going to read more because this gets even better. It's an absolute absurd misunderstanding of how things get made to single out any particular story and say, why isn't it this, that, and the other thing, added Joel. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of how stories are written. So you have to start there and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. How did that make you feel? I was very um, awkward in the room, but I was okay. It was frustrating. You were disappointed. I was disappointed, yeah, because I always hope for, uh, I don't know, a more uh, more woke kind of exchange from filmmakers who clearly have spent years of their lives thinking about every single facet of a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... I want to have a conversation about this because when it comes to them, it is no surprise that that is their answer. Sure. I think they're Midwestern, not that anything about that, but like, you know, there is a certain type of age and generation. And, and there's a certain type of story that they tell. Right. Which is yeah. like sort of like a, I don't even know how to describe the stories. They but that's basically in. what Ethan's response was, right? Like uh, if it's whatever is appropriate for the story. Right. But you still think that's bullshit? I don't think it's... Well, I think, yeah. Like, then the question is, why do you only tell those stories? Mm-hmm. And their response is, that's all we know. I don't know if they didn't answer that. They would. They didn't say... So saying, what know. if that's... Their, that's probably their response. Is your response then, no more? Learn about something else? Expand your horizons? No, because I'm not going to tell an artist what they should do. That's not my place at all. But I do find the more that like we're able to have those conversations, I, I feel like the more inclusion we'll see. Because I, I do, ha like I have a number of filmmaker friends who, especially in the last few years, have wrestled with issues of diversity, inclusion, casting it, writing it in their own films. And I've heard the argument often of, well, now I feel like it's not my place to tell stories other than the experiences that I know, and I'm a white person, so. Do you buy that? 
No, I don't. And I try to very gently encourage them that, you know, you can tell all sorts of stories if you tell them responsibly. Mm-hmm. You do do things gently. That is your approach, I've noticed. Uh, as really? A, Think so? As an, well, you know, it comes off harsher on the page. That's true. But that's because you're writing. But I imagine you in those interview settings, and I and I know, you know, just how I know you, you strike me as someone who's like, you're going to get your point in, but you're going to be as respectful about it as possible so that they can't come at you for being disrespectful. Well, I try to. You know, and that is honestly like 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 if somebody was gonna come at me and confront me about like a choice that I've made, mm-hmm. nobody wants to it's kind of like you learn this in couples therapy, which I went to once, is that you say, When this happens, this is how I feel, not why did you do that thing? Mm-hmm. You're evil, you know. And I think that applies to every kind of relationship and every kind of interaction. Is that like um when people realize the impact that their choice has made and if that impact has negatively affected somebody else in a way that they didn't anticipate, then I feel like they're more inclined to give it deeper, more meaningful thought the next time they have the opportunity. Hmm. I love that. That was good. Thanks. You say that you're not giving filmmakers advice on how to make what they want to make. But I don't know if that's entirely accurate. I'm going to push on this. Sure. Because I've done this. I've, I mean, I, we've done the same job for a lot of yeah. years. You do it better than I do. Oh, come on. No, you do. Because we're, we're, we, have different, we have different goals. My goal is like, I don't need to write a news story. I don't need to write like a topical feature. I probably should do that and I'd get paid more. But that's something you really honed in and refined your craft doing at the Daily Beast. And I think that's why the LA Times hired you, because you're very good at doing that and pushing. And um, I do think that question you ask is fair, but I've seen stuff. I mean, you you ask leading questions sometimes mm-hmm. that are clearly your intent and what you want is in the question. So is it entirely fair to say, you're not giving some little suggestion about what you'd like them to do? No, and, and I think personally and publicly, I have not made a secret of what I would like to see in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I'm not going to tell a filmmaker like what story to tell or how to tell it. But I do think it's our job as journalists to sort of be responsible with the platform that we do have and the access that we do have to lead or create conversations that, that need to be had mm-hmm. that aren't being had. So like Oscar So White, for example. What did you make of that? I thought it was important and I think it's still important. And what the one thing I hate about it is that when that award season cycle was over, everybody was like, well, mm-hmm. that's enough of that. That problem's last year's problem or whatever. Or when Moonlight won, which is amazing and everybody's like well on to the next topic right and people forget about it and uh there's a lot of like oh we checked that box we did it cool let's move on now but the diversity conversation is not going away it has gone away don't you think i think it's 
ever present. Uh, I mean, in the circles that I try to traffic, at least, um, I do think it's there. The problem is like, fuck conversations about that. Like, let's just do that. The thing is, like, there's so right. much. There's so much talk about it. Right. That you're not doing the thing we're talking about, and it's a lot easier as we've seen in the last, <laughs> you know, couple months of people I don't trust talking about diversity, you know, it's a lot easier to just like put out a statement and put like, you know, the biggest thing that I find is that rich people are like, yeah, we're going to change stuff. And we should totally do that. And we're, they like put money in a fund and it's like, yeah, you put like a million dollars, but your net worth is like 500. Yeah. And that is one of the challenges and the frustrations of covering Hollywood is that Hollywood is quick to jump on a a hot topic, but Mm -hmm. not quick to actually like take responsibility and be personally accountable for being a part of that change. So you see a lot of like studios or companies respond to like gender gender parity discussions by saying, oh, well, now we have a program for for finding more female talent, for giving more women directors an opportunity. And if those programs are just like, well, like five women can come shadow another director on a set and then, you know, (laughs) done, we're all done. Right. That's not real change. You know, the real change, if we're going to call it that, I'm just thinking about the Coen brothers. Let's just frame it within this this context God, they probably hate me so much whatever the thing we're not grappling with and the thing that's most frustrating and, and i have a hard time articulating it and i certainly can't do it on twitter or facebook is that like they don't want to change well what's their incentive for it there's like they've made movies for decades the way they have and aside from the coen brothers there's a lot of filmmakers when you press that question the they're qu- supportive. They're supportive, yes, but the thing is, but. it's it's literally within themselves and yeah. their experience. There's either an absence of interacting with minorities, or there's like an absence of interest for whatever reason. I don't know their upbringing, culturally, the music they like. What all all these things create a person, and I think the thing that we're really struggling with is that most people just. They don't care. They just don't care. They know that they're supposed to care, mm-hmm. but they have no idea how to do that. I mean, I try to be optimistic about like humanity, as hard as it is to keep trying to <laughs> to do so. And I think most people care, but I don't think they that most people care enough to do something about it. Mm. But it's interest. It's, it, it's, I think we're talking, I mean. Which is it, why, like, the diversity question has always been answered by, well, box office receipts will force that, right? Right. Or um, that's now our metric for proving that diverse stories do work. When they do work, then we can be like, see, the audience is there for it. Yeah, but the thing that's not helpful is that if, it's not just the conversation, it's about the wiring within someone to want to do it. So, like, the idea of, uh, let's put on ex-white filmmaker, wants to make a movie, and he's told, it will benefit you to be diverse. Yes. That's not the same as wanting to be diverse. Yeah, totally. And I think that's the, you know, like, this is, I've not said this on the show before, but I'll tell you. 
when we started the podcast, the first like seven episodes, there was like four or five black men on it. And I will tell you, I got emails and texts and Facebook messages from people, people I like. And they said, oh, are you doing a black show? And it like, it like broke my heart to hear that because, uh, not that like I'm some like woke person. It's not, and not that I don't think I'm better than them or any of that. It's that they were just all people I liked. Mm-hmm. Like I love Kamau Bell. Yeah. And like Don Cheadle and all these people. And the sad thing is like those people are asked less to be on podcasts. Black people are asked less. Yeah. Women are asked even less. And you go through, you know, it's in film criticism, but you go through podcast, look at the guest list of people. It, the amount of white guys who come on podcast and are the constant guests. We've had our fair share of white guys on our on our show. God damn, why are there so many white guys everywhere? And there's so many. Oh gosh. There's so many. But the thing is, there was never a talk with the producer on the show. Oh, of course. At the time, we were yeah. like, we should have X amount of black people on the podcast. It was like, that's what we're supposed to do because that's what I want to do. And I don't know how to help people's interest. Like, some people just want to listen to you too. And I can't oh do anything God, about what that. What's wrong with those people? <laughs> like, you tell some good songs. They're like three good songs. People are going to really good, hate I mean. I'm saying this. I realize now I'm like coming off as an asshole. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you just lost the YouTube fandom you know how much better this show would be doing if we had white people only on it no i don't you honestly think that i the numbers when we have white guys on the show are better why is that do you think because they're people, more famous because, because people want to hear andy greenwald talk they're more famous no no they're not no. More, they're not more famous it's because like people love hearing andy greenwald talk about stuff People like hearing white dudes that they're familiar with. All this is familiarity. I mean, I don't. You don't. Yes, I know that. <laughs> but like, it hurts me that I'm a guy. We have less women listeners because I'm a guy. I mean, I'm being honest. We have never said this on the Wait, podcast. Say that again. You have fewer women listeners because you are a guy. Yes. And women want to listen to women. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the numbers support that statement. That's all. Do I think that? No, I think women are more complex than that. But the numbers do suggest that like they want to support women podcasters. And I listen to more shows that women host anyway. Like I get it. Good. Anna Sale is just better at this than everyone. I think it's a very, it seems like, it sounds like, you know, on Twitter and talking to a lot of my friends, many of whom are white men. I hear a lot of frustration, but I also hear slowly people of, and not just white guys, but like people like me, myself, like everybody is realizing, I think very slowly, but it's happening that, that there are different degrees of privilege and it's, mm. it's valuable to realize that your own privilege should mean you should shut up sometimes and Mm. listen and amplify other people. And I definitely feel that. I am an Asian-American woman. Newsflash, 
to anybody listening who didn't Uh-oh. know that. Game changing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is honestly, it's it's a lot of the reason why, especially at the the times, um, I would say most of the whitewashing. Asian specific diversity coverage from the times has come from me because I care about it and I don't see anybody else doing it. Not that any of my colleagues wouldn't, but there's so much to cover and you tend to champion the things that you feel most personally. Mm. It's important for me to amplify and highlight uh, women, women of color. Um, I hear something you've, you've divulged some secrets. Here's one of mine. It's not a secret. I don't care. People can know. I try as much as I can. It's not possible, but I try as much as I can to not do features on white men. Literally give me anybody else. There's so many other people who are interesting because um, I realized that my platform at the Times can reach so many people who might not be as familiar with people who are not white men, famous white men. So when the opportunity arises, it's really gratifying for me to be able to give a platform and a a highlight to somebody who might not otherwise get a feature story in the the print section of the times that's a noble and uh, very easy it's so easy but it's actually (laughs) a really easy thing to do and anybody could do it even on twitter like not enough people who are self-described as woke um and people who like genuinely want to help uh, the I, culture change. None of people just shut up and listen to other people. Can I make an admission? When someone tells me they're woke, I get really anxious. I just like saying it because it's funny to me that like woke has suddenly become so, so ingrained in our, the word, the word. Yeah. In our, in our daily lexicon. But yeah, like I would never describe myself that way. Hi, I'm Sam. Uh, I'm woke. It's nice like calling you. yourself a hipster. Like hipsters hate that. But you know. But and it woke is a four letters that cut right to a very specific ideological like motivation, and I do think it's noble and I do think it's important. You have written about white men. I have, and and, and the, a lot of them, especially in the last few months, because we've had uh, a lot of uh, culprits uh, do things. Why well, I don't know whatever you mean. <laughs> what do by you mean, this, Sam? It seems like every week there's just a new white guy that's coming out and just being like, yeah, I'm not a great person. There's a lot of white dudes who suck. Yeah. A lot of men who suck. Yeah. Which women have always known. Mm-hmm. But yeah. What's thought, your question? Well, here's my question. You know, you wrote about, let's start with the Cine family thing. It's something close to both of us. Yeah. Uh, Seeing as we're both in the LA repertory film we're both in LA scene, we know all the people there we go to movies we go to small theaters we do all those things yeah uh I thought you handled it very diplomatically and fairly in your piece and I, I was not surprised it was sort of business as usual in reading this type of things that you write I want to ask you how hard is it to write about people you know it's really difficult, but we kind of do that anyway covering film, right? Like if you're in L.A. or New York, you develop relationships. Not relationships, but like you develop working relationships with a lot of people in the industry that you will cover in some way, right? Like a film critic who's been reviewing a director's work for decades 
or a, a journalist who has interviewed the same A-list celebrity like five times for different like magazine features or been to their house or had like shared intimate time with them for whatever reasons. Hmm. We cross paths at film festivals, at screenings. But those are different than friends. No, but that's how, you know, connections form in that community, right? So at some level, I think it's inescapable. Um, it's kind of like there used to be much more than there is currently this question of um, film critics. Can a film critic, like, ethically be objective to <clears throat> films if X, Y, or Z, right? And I think if you're, like, a fair, objective person, then that will come through in your writing or you just avoid. And this is why, like, that com that's come up a lot with, like, something like, kind of critic who's eaten a cheeseburger slider at an after party for a film be objective when they're writing a review of that film. There are people who would say no. And there are a lot of companies that have policies where you can't accept like swag or like junket trips and stuff like that. I accept everything. When the Cine family stuff happened, I found it all on a day-to-day -day basis to be pretty heartbreaking. Why so? What was revealed uh, was disappointing, was hard to stomach, and very conflicting. You know, for me, as someone who I, I mean, I really have a lot of love for the people who created that place and worked there. A lot of people who had nothing to do with anything in those documents who have families, who work their asses off at a nonprofit because that's the only thing you can do at a nonprofit. And I love the place and what it stood for, programmatically. I can't speak for the more unseemly bits of it, but uh, it was sad. It was sad to see it, and it felt to me just another reason why the Internet has not figured itself out in terms of how we want to treat people and how we want to properly serve justice and what that justice looks like. And it's tough. It's tough. And, I, and I'm still grappling. I mean, I don't, I don't know how we do it. But I do know what we're doing now is not working. Meaning? Meaning we're treating people as super disposable. Very disposable. And we're uninterested in how terribly idiosyncratic we all are. And I'm not defending what happened. I think people got removed and should have been removed. There's no debate about that. But I'm uncertain whether a whole institution that by and large saved a lot of filmmakers' careers and championed the type of stuff that we like that no other fucking place does in the city, I'm uncertain whether... That had to end. And uh, that's upsetting. And I think, you know, a similar thing is happening right now with Alamo. And I think you're closer to them than I am. But I, I, all of it, the, the online feedback, the blowback from that, it's hard to reconcile with it. And I think we're treating each other really badly. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's a big, complicated mess. It is like the messiest problem the messiest most urgent and most important crisis that 
I've seen happen to not just the film community, not just the LA community, not just the Austin Draft House community, but like all of us in this moment. And it all feels very connected. And I do believe it's connected to like, we don't feel like we have any control over what happens in the world or this country. And it's very hard to just sit there and not have any recourse to injustices that have been, you know, like running rampant for who knows how long. And so, yeah, I, I see what you mean. And I agree uh, about the way in which a lot of this mess has been illuminated. And I just don't, like, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously. Maybe not obviously, but yes, I have. I've given it a lot of thought. It's like the most emotionally exhausting thing in my life for the last probably year as a woman in the film community. Who cares? And I think that the ends, obviously, as we're seeing this week and last week, we're seeing Harvey Weinstein's fall. Uh, we're seeing more solidarity among women and for women and for not just women, but for uh, victims of abuse of any gender. We're seeing that collectively expressed on social media and in the real world. And I think that's absolutely important. And it had to happen. And so it's hard for me to, I don't know, it is hard for me to to really resolve how it's all happened and what we might be losing in the way that it's happened because Twitter is the primary discourse, primary platform with its own limitations. Mm. It's hard for me to resolve that, what I see as the losses, due process, for example, with the enormous, important, necessary wins that we are we are seeing. So, yeah, it's, I, I don't know, it's hard. It, and it's hard being on social media, which I am, a lot. It's emotionally taxing. It's hard being a journalist on social media right now. It's hard being a female journalist in the world. So a lot of it's kind of, it feels kind of like every single painful force is converging right now in my head, over my, over my head. And I know that I don't have it as bad as a lot of people. And I do feel like it's a necessary thing to have happened right now. And I want to be helpful. I want to be part of it. I want to be part of helping fix the world, the community. I want to help right the wrongs. Um, I want to help people who have felt unheard be heard. And it's kind of hard. It's really hard to know how best to do that. I don't even know what your original question was. This is very heavy. But it 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 is. I know you know that it I, I know you know and I know you can tell that it weighs a lot on me. And it's a really hard thing to to talk about. But the interesting thing being on Twitter or Facebook, for example, in this moment in the culture is that it's a an incredibly emotionally isolating experience, but then you have a conversation with somebody else 
either in person or like over messaging or something and you realize that like other people other women are going through the exact same thing and you feel a little bit less alone and that's been the most important thing to happen to me throughout this whole thing do you think you're making a difference in the field you work in yeah. and, and what you write about uh, i mean I, I am made aware by other people that it means something to other people to see an asian woman writing about entertainment in a newspaper and that it matters other people have told me that it matters to them so it's really nice to hear that and it's very it, it bolsters me and it gives me more strength to do it so i hope that i'm making a difference i honestly think as a of a, a non white man as a minority woman my existence makes a difference <laughs> my the visibility I, I mean honestly visibility does make a difference um if I say that representation matters in film, I certainly think that it matters in the newsroom too. Mm. And on the internet and anywhere. And I mean, it's interesting that you start your podcast by asking people about their childhood because I do feel like my personal relationship with like identity has been very like complicated at times. Growing up as a fourth generation Japanese American girl in a very diverse place, I always felt this specter of being judged by my appearance by other people who would look at me and just assume that they knew my story, which is why 90% of strangers who like try to strike up conversation with me for most of my life ask me where I'm from. And when I tell them I'm from the Bay Area, they say, no, really, where are you really from? And then I want to punch them in the face. <laughs> And that happened to me my entire life. So it does it does something. I mentioned my, and it was like, there's definitely a point in time where I developed a toughness to compensate for that and where I realized that the only way to counteract that was to, to establish that I am my own person and I am a singular person. Um, so I think that gave me some confidence to to like put myself out there as an individual. And I think that then gave me confidence in my own voice. And that's the thing that happened to me when I was 17. So around then. So that is definitely something that has defined the way that I can impact the field or other people or even on an individual basis. At a certain point, like, Five, six years ago, I decided that the next person to come up to me in the Vons parking lot and ask me where I'm from because uh, they want to, like, be nice to me and take me out to dinner or something stupid like that. Uh, I was going to just, like, tell them. I was going to tell them what I thought about that question. And I did. And it took this man, stranger, random man, totally aback. I was like, why would you ask that question? Why don't you ask? Like, that tells you nothing about who I am as a person and he he was like not very apologetic he, he was defensive people are defensive because they think they're being nice so uh to me that's definitely been um like for a while i thought it was a chip on my shoulder and now I don't, I don't see it as a chip anymore i see it as like the thing that drives me but i have a little bit more empathy for 
the person asking that question. And I now want to engage them in a different way that will have more of a meaningful impact than uh, me yelling at a guy in Vaughn's parking lot. <laughs> well, um, Jen, thank you for uh, engaging with me <laughs> on this and uh, for sharing part of your story here. Thanks for asking me to be on Talk Easy with Sam for <laughs> Jen Yamano, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Sam. Jen Yamato's work in the LA Times, both online and in print. If you want to follow her on Twitter, please be sure to do so at Jen Yamato. We'll include links to more of her writing at our website at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Max Ship. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer. And the show is produced by Dylan Beck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.